Welcome to tape number six of the Gleanings in the Godhead, part two, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, The Redemption of Christ our righteous Redeemer, does such a title have a strange sound to the reader? Is that adjective unfamiliar in such a context? The great majority of us probably are far more accustomed to such expressions as our loving Redeemer, or our gracious Redeemer, or even our mighty Redeemer. We employ the term here not because we are striving for originality, no, Rather, such an appellation is required by the teaching of Scripture. In fact, if we carefully observe where the Holy Spirit has placed His emphasis, it is incumbent on us that we should conform our terminology thereto. See how many passages you can recall where either loving or gracious is used as an adjective in connection with Christ. If memory fails, consult a concordance, and you will be surprised that neither of them occurs a single time. Now try the word righteous and see how many passages refer to the Lord Jesus as such. Christ is referred to as my righteous servant, Isaiah 53.11, as a righteous branch, Jeremiah 23.5, and in the next verse, as uh, the Lord, our righteousness, as the Son of Righteousness, Malachi 4.2, as a righteous man, Luke 23.47, as the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4.8. He is seen as the antitypical Melchizedek, or King of Righteousness, Hebrews 7.2-3. As our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. In addition, the same Greek word, dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, is rendered just in the following passages. Pilate's wife sent a warning to her husband, Have thou nothing to do with this just or righteous man, Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. In the same chapter, Pilate himself declared, I am innocent of the blood of this just man, verse 34. 
He is called the just, Acts 3.14 and James 5.6, and the just one, Acts 7.52 and Acts 22.14. While in 1 Peter 3.18 are the well-known words, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, actually rendered the righteous for the unrighteousness. In the revised version, that when Zechariah predicted his entry into Jerusalem riding on an ass, he said, Behold, thy king cometh to thee, he is just. In Revelation 19.11, where he is depicted on a white horse, it is said, In righteousness he doth judge and make war. All In all of these passages, the, father, the father's fellow and equal is viewed in his official character as the God-man mediator. Equally evident is it that the verses intimate the Lord Jesus is righteous is righteous in his person, in the administration of his office, in the discharge of the great commission given him. Before his incarnation, it was announced, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins, Isaiah 11.5. And Christ affirmed by the spirit of prophecy, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation, Psalm 40, verse 9. There was no fault or failure in his performing of the honored and momentous task committed to him. As his own words to the Father prove, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, John 17:4. God's owning of Christ as my righteous servant signifies that he excellently executed the work entrusted to him. As the Holy Spirit declares, he was faithful to him that appointed him. Hebrews 3, 2. When the Father rewarded him, he said, Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Psalm 45, verse 7. Further, Christ is the righteous redeemer of his people because their righteousness is in him. He wrought out a perfect righteousness for them, Upon their believing in him, it is imputed or reckoned to their account. Therefore, he is designated the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23.6. Christ was righteous, not as a private person, not for himself alone, but for us sinners and our salvation. He acted as God's righteous servant and as his people's righteous sponsor, he lived and died that all the infinite merits of his obedience might be made over to them. In justifying his sinful people, God neither disregarded nor dishonored his law. Instead, he established it, Romans 3.31. The Redeemer was made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. Its strictness was not relaxed, nor was one iota of its requirements obeyed in connection with him. Christ rendered to the law a personal perfect and perpetual obedience. Therefore, he did magnify the law and make it honorable, Isaiah 42:21. Consequently, God is not only gracious, but just at the very moment he is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, Romans 3:26. because Jesus satisfied every requirement of righteousness on behalf of all who trust in him. In the righteous Redeemer, we find the answer to the question, how can those who have no righteousness of their own and who are utterly unable to procure any become righteous before God? 
How can man who is a mass of corruption, corruption draw nigh unto the ineffably holy one and look up into his face in peace? He can do so by coming to God as unrighteous, acknowledging his inability to remove unrighteousness and offering nothing to palliate him. Because we were unable to reach up to the holy requirements or righteousness of the law, God brought his righteousness down to us. I bring near my righteousness, Isaiah 46:13. That righteousness was brought near to sinners, excuse me, was brought near to sinners when the word became flesh and tabernacled among men. It is brought near to us in the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, Romans 1:17. This righteousness God imputes to all who believe and then deals with them according to its deserts. For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be not put into a capacity of acquiring a righteousness of our own, but made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here is the double imputation of our sins to Christ and of his righteousness to us. We are not said to be made righteous, but righteousness itself, and not righteousness only, but the righteousness of God, the utmost that language can reach. In the same manner that Christ was made sin, we are made righteousness. Christ did not know actual sin, but in his mediatorial interposition on our behalf, he was dealt with as a guilty person. Likewise, we are destitute of all legal righteousness, yet, upon receiving Christ, we are viewed by the divine majesty as righteous creatures. Both were by imputation an amazing exchange, so as to exclude the idea that any inherent righteousness is involved, it is said, we are made the righteousness of God in him. As the sin imputed to Christ is inherent in us, so the righteousness by which we are justified is inherent in him. The divine plan of redemption fully satisfies the claims of the law. There was nothing in all its sacred injunctions which Christ did not perform, nothing in all its awful threatenings which he did not sustain. He fulfilled all its precepts by an unspotted purity of heart and a perfect integrity of life. He exhausted the whole curse when he hung on the cross, abandoned by God for the sins of his people. His obedience conferred higher honor upon the law than it could possibly have received from an uninterrupted compliance by Adam and his posterity. The per- Factions of God which were dishonored by our rebellion are glorified in our redemption. In redemption, God appears inflexibly just in exacting vengeance and inconceivably rich in showing mercy. This is a quote from James Hervey. Quote, The sword of justice and the scepter of grace has each its due exercise, each its full expression. End quote. The interest of holiness are also secured, for where redemption is received by faith, it kindles in the heart in an intense hatred of sin and the deepest love and gratitude to God. Chapter 11 The Saviorhood of Christ My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55.8 
solemnly these words manifest the terrible havoc sin has wrought in fallen mankind. They are out of touch with their Maker. Nay, more, they are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, Ephesians 4.18. As a consequence, the soul has lost its anchorage. Everything has been thrown out of gear, and human depravity has turned all things upside down. Instead of subordinating the concerns of this life to the interest of the life to come, Man devotes himself principally to the present and gives little or no thought to the eternal. Instead of putting the good of his soul ahead of the needs of the body, man is occupied chiefly about food and raiment. Instead of man's great aim being to please God, ministering to self has become his prime business. Man's thoughts ought to be governed by God's word and his ways regulated by God's revealed will. But... The converse is true. So the things which are of great price in the sight of God, 1 Peter 3, 4, are despised by the fallen creature, and that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God, Luke 16:15. Man has turned things topsy-turvy, sadly in evidence when he attempts to handle divine matters. The perversity which sin has caused appears in our reversing God's order. The scripture speaks of man's spirit and soul and body, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. But when the world refers to it, it says body, soul, and spirit. Scripture declares that Christians are strangers and pilgrims in this scene. But nine times out of ten, even good men talk and write of pilgrims and strangers. This tendency to reverse God's order is part of fallen man's nature. Unless the Holy Spirit interposes and works a miracle of grace, its effects are fatal to the soul. Nowhere do we have a more tragic example of this than in the evangelistic message now being given, though scarcely anyone seems aware of it. That something is radically wrong with the world is widely recognized. That Christendom is in a sad state many are painfully conscious. That error abounds on every side, that practical godliness is at a low ebb, that worldliness has devitalized many churches is apparent to increasing numbers. But few see how bad things are. Few perceive that things are rotten to the very foundation. Yet such is the case. God's true way of salvation is little known today. The gospel which is being preached, even in orthodox circles, is often an erroneous gospel. Even there man has reversed God's order. For many years it has been taught that nothing more is required for a sinner's salvation than to, quote, accept Christ as his personal Savior, end quote. Later he ought to bow to him as Lord, consecrate his life to him, and serve him fully. But even if he fails to do so, heaven is sure for him. He will lack peace and joy now, and probably miss some millennial crown. But having received Christ as his personal Savior, he has been delivered from wrath to come. This is a reversal of God's order. It is the devil's lie, and only the day to come will show how many have been fatally deceived by it. We are aware this is strong language, and it may come as a shock, but test it by this light. 
every passage of the New Testament where these two titles occur together say Lord and Savior and never Savior. Luke 1, 46 and 47. Unless Jehovah had first become her Lord, most certainly he would not have been her Savior. No one who seriously ponders the matter has any difficulty perceiving this. How could a thrice holy God save one who scorned his authority, despised his honor, and flouted his revealed will? It is infinite grace that God is ready to be reconciled to us when we throw the weapons of our rebellion against him. But it would be an act of unrighteousness putting a premium upon lawlessness were he to pardon the sinner before he was first reconciled to his maker. The saints of God are bidden to make their calling and election sure, Second Peter 1.10, and this by adding to their faith the other graces enumerated in verses 5-7. to They are assured that if they do so, they shall never fall, for such for so an entrance shall be ministered to them abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our one Lord and two Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter one eleven. But particularly note the order in which Christ's titles are mentioned. It is not our Savior and Lord, but Lord and Savior. He becomes the Savior of none until the heart and will unreservedly receive him as Lord. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end and overcome, excuse me, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, second Peter two twenty. Here the apostle refers to those who had a head knowledge of the truth and then apostatized. There had been a reformation outwardly in their lives, but no regeneration of the heart. For a, while, for a while they were delivered from the pollutions of the world, but with no supernatural work of grace having been wrought in their souls, the lustings of the flesh proved too strong. They were again overcome and returned to their former manner of life, like the dog to its vomit, or the sow to its wallowing in the mire. The apostasy is described as to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, which referred to the terms of discipleship made known in the gospel. But what are we particularly concerned about is the Holy Spirit's order. These apostates had been favored with the knowledge of, one, the Lord, and two, Savior Jesus Christ. God's people are exhorted to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Here again, God's order is the opposite of man's. Nor is this merely a technical detail concerning which a mistake is of little moment. No, the subject is basic, vital, and fundamental, and error at this point is fatal. Those who have not submitted to Christ as Lord but to trust in him as Savior are deceived. The same principle is illustrated in passages where other titles of Christ occur. Take the opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, where he is presented as Jesus Christ, 1, the son of David, 2, the son of Abraham. Waver, waiving the dispensational significance, 
signification of these titles, view them from the doctrinal and practical viewpoint, which should be our first consideration. Son of David brings to the throne, emphasizes his authority, and demands allegiance to a scepter, and Son of David comes before Son of Abraham. Again, we are told that God has exalted Jesus to his own right hand to be, one, a prince, and two, a savior, Acts 5.31. The concept embodied in the title prince is that of supreme dominion and authority, the prince of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. In the book of Acts, we quickly discover that the message of the apostles was altogether different not only in emphasis, but also in substance from the preaching of our times. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declared, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2.21, and and reminded his hearers that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36, not Christ and Lord. To Cornelius and his household, Peter presented Christ as Lord of all, Acts 10.36, When Barnabas came to Antioch, he exhorted them all with the purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord, Acts 11.23. Also, Paul and Barnabas commended them to the Lord on whom they believed, Acts 14.23. At the great synod in Jerusalem, Peter reminded his fellows that the Gentiles would seek after not only a Savior, but the Lord, Acts 15.17. To the Philippian jailer and his household, Paul and Silas preached the word of the Lord, Acts 16.32. The apostles not only emphasized the lordship of Christ, but also they made surrender to it essential to salvation. This is clear from many other passages, and believers were the more added to the two, not Christ, but the Lord, Acts 5.14. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord, Acts 9.35. And many believed in the Lord, Acts 9.42. And much people was added unto the Lord, Acts 11.24. Then the deputy, when he saw what he had done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord, Acts 13.12. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the... (coughs) Excuse me. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, Acts 18.8. If you today have a right conception of what a scriptural and saving conversion is, the call to it is set forth in Isaiah 55.7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return, having an Adam departed, unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. The character of conversion is described in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Conversion, then, is a turning from sin unto holiness, from self unto God, from Satan unto Christ. It is the voluntary surrender of ourselves to the Lord Jesus, not only by a consent of dependence upon his merits, but also by a willing readiness to obey him, giving up the keys of our hearts and laying them at his feet. It is the soul declaring, O Lord our God, other lords besides thee have had dominion over us, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. 
Isaiah 26.13. This is a quote from James Bellamy, 1770. Quote, Conversion consists in our being recovered from our present sinfulness to the moral image of God, or, which is the same thing, to a real conformity to the moral law. But a conformity to the moral law consists in a dispensation excuse me, disposition to love God supremely, live to Him ultimately, and delight in Him superlatively, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and a practice agreeing thereto. And therefore, conversion consists in our being recovered from what we are by nature to such a disposition and practice, end quote. Note the searching words in Acts 3.26, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. This is Christ's way of blessing men, converting them. However, the gospel may instruct, excuse me, however the gospel may instruct and enlighten men, so long as they remain the slaves of sin, it has conferred upon them no eternal advantage. Know ye not that... uh, to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants are you to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Romans 6.16 There is a real difference between believing in the deity of Christ and surrendering to his lordship. Many are firmly persuaded that Jesus is the Son of God. They have no doubt he is the maker of heaven and earth. But that is no proof of conversion. The demons own him as the Son of God, Matthew 8:29. What we press here is not the mind's assent to the Godhood of God, of Christ, excuse me, but of the will's yielding to his authority so that the life is regulated by his commandments. There must be a subjecting of ourselves to him. The one is useless without the other. He becomes the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, Hebrews 5:9. Yet in the face of the clear teaching of Holy Writ, when unsaved people are concerned about their future destiny and inquire, what must we do to be saved? The answer they are usually given is, accept Christ as your personal Savior. Little effort is made to press upon them, as Paul did the Philippian jailer, the Lordship of Christ. Many a blind leader of the blind glibly quotes, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. John 1.12 Perhaps the leader objects, but nothing is said there about receiving Christ as Lord. Directly, no. Nor is anything said there about receiving Christ as a personal Savior. It is a whole Christ which must be received or none at all. But if the objector will carefully ponder the context of John 1.12, he will quickly discover that it is as Lord Christ is presented and as such must be received by us. In the previous verse, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In what character does that view him? Clearly as the owner and master of Israel, and it was as such they received him not. Consider what he does for those who do receive him. To them gave he power, the right or prerogative, to become the sons of God. Who but the Lord of lords is vested with authority to give others the title to be sons of God? In an unregenerate state, no sinner is subject to Christ as Lord, though he may be fully convinced of his deity and employ Lord Jesus when referring to him. When we say that no unregenerate person is subject to Christ as Lord, we mean that he will, excuse me, we mean that his will is not the rule of life, 
to please, obey, honor, and glorify Christ is not the dominant aim, disposition, and striving of his heart. Far from this being the case, his real sentiment is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus 5.2 The whole trend of his life is saying, I will not have this man to reign over me. See Luke 19.14 Despite all religious pretensions, the real attitude of the unregenerate towards God is, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve or be in subjection to him? Job 21.14-15 Their conduct intimates, Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Psalm 12.4 Instead of surrendering to God in Christ, every sinner turns to his own way. Isaiah 53.6 Living only to please self. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, he causes that person to see what sin really is. He makes the convicted one understand that sin is rebellion against God, a refusal to submit to the Lord. The Spirit causes him to realize that he has been an insurrectionist against him who is exalted above all. He is now convinced not only of this sin or that idol, but also is brought to realize his whole life has been a fighting against God, that he has knowingly, willfully, and constantly ignored and defied him deliberately choosing to go his own way. The work of the Spirit in God's elect is not so much to convince each of them that they are lost sinners. The conscience, conscience of the natural man knows that without any supernatural operation of the Spirit. It is to reveal the exceeding sinfulness of sin, Romans 7:13, by making us see and feel that all sin is a species of spiritual anarchy, a defiance of the Lordship of Christ. When a man has really been convicted by the supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit, the first effect on him is complete and abject despair. His case appears to be utterly hopeless. He now sees he has sinned so grievously that it appears impossible for a righteous God to do anything but damn him for eternity. He sees what a fool he has been in heeding the voice of temptation, fighting against the Most High and in losing his own soul. He recalls how often God had spoken to him in the past, as a child, as a youth, as an adult upon a bed of sickness, in the death of a loved one, in adversities, and how he refused to listen and deliberately turned a deaf ear. He now feels he has sinned away his day of grace, but the ground must be plowed and harrowed before it is receptive to see. So the heart must be prepared by these harrowing experiences. The stubborn will broken before it is ready for the healing of the gospel. But how very few ever are savingly convicted by the Spirit. The Spirit continues His work on the soul, plowing still deeper, revealing the hideousness of sin, producing a horror of and hatred for it. The sinner next receives the beginning of hope, which results in an earnest inquiry, What must I do to be saved? Then the Spirit who, comes, who has come to earth to glorify Christ presses upon that awakened soul the claims of his Lordship, i.e. Luke 14, 26-33, and makes us realize that Christ demands our hearts, lives, and all. Then he grants grace to the quickened soul to renounce all other lords, to turn away from all idols, and to receive Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Nothing but the sovereign and supernatural work of the Spirit can bring this to pass. 
A preacher may induce a man to believe what Scripture says about his lost condition, persuade him to bow to the divine verdict, and then accept Christ as his personal Savior. No man wants to go to hell, and fire is assured intellectually that Christ stands ready as a fire escape on the sole condition that he jump into his arms, quote, rest on his finished work, end quote. Thousands will do so. But a hundred preachers are unable to make an unregenerate person realize the dreadful nature of sin or show him that he has been a lifelong rebel against God or change his heart so that he now hates himself and longs to please God and serve Christ. Only the Spirit can bring man to the place where he is willing to forsake every idol, cut off a hindering right hand, or pluck out an offending right eye. Probably, some will say, but the exhortations addressed to saints in the epistles show that it is Christians and not the unsaved who are to surrender to Christ's Lordship, Romans 12.1. Such a mistake only serves to demonstrate the gross spiritual darkness which has enveloped even Orthodox Christendom. The exhortations of the epistles simply signify that Christians are to continue as they began. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, Colossians 2.6. All the exhortations may be summed up in two words, come to Christ, abide in him. And what is abiding but coming to Christ constantly, 1 Peter 2.4. The saints, Romans 12.1, had already been been bidden to yield themselves unto God, Romans 6.13. While we are on earth, we will always need such admonitions. Admonitions. The backslidden church at Ephesus was told, Repent and do the first works, Revelation 2.5. And now a pointed question. Is Christ your Lord? Does he in fact occupy the throne of your heart? Does he actually rule your life? If not, then most certainly he is not your Savior. Unless your heart has been renewed, unless grace has changed you from a lawless rebel to a loving subject, then you are yet in your sins and the broad road and on the broad road to destruction. This concludes the reading of tape number six of part two of Gleanings in the Godhead by A. W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free, pin, pre, free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf sets if you visit our website at swrb.com. 
as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.